Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We should just have you whistling the theme song instead of the actual music. I think that's going to be our 2018 music that people would like. I think that would work, right? <laughs> sure. Welcome back to Kotaku Split Screen, the only video game podcast to cheese the Taurus demon off a bridge. It's May 31st, 2018, and we've got some questions and answers to share with you today. First, Jason and I talk about the big announcements this week, with a new Fallout game and several new Pokemon games announced within the same 24 hours, as well as Valve's decision to remove a school shooting game from Steam. Then we answer some listener questions discussing how to get the most out of E3, whether E3 is still relevant, the big 2018 game we're both still a little skeptical about, the unique challenges of video game narrative, and how reviews work in the era of service games. Take me home, Country Roads, to a podcast where we all belong. Here we go. Hello, you ravenous video game news devourers of the world. Welcome back to Kotaku Split Screen. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Kirk Hamilton. I am the editor-at-large for Kotaku.com, joined, as ever, by Kotaku News Editor Jason Schreier. Hello, Jason. Hello, Kirk. It is an exciting week. We have Fallout news. We have Pokemon news. It feels like E3 has already started. Give it to me. Doesn't it? Give me the news. E3 starts like a week earlier every year. I think that eventually E3 will just be beginning in March. Like GDC, we'll just have to stop going to GDC because there'll be so much E3 news to cover. (laughs) That's sort of how it feels to me. It does. It does. The show itself actually starts earlier and earlier because EA has now moved to Saturday for their press conference. So it really has just been, it used to be everything was Monday and then it moved to, then people started doing stuff on (laughs) Sunday and then now Saturday. Soon it's going to be like Friday before, Thursday before. I'm really picturing, yeah, being at the Moscone's Center for GDC and Konami is like, here's our pre-E3 press conference. Yes. Um, here what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, Konami. They're, they're definitely going to They would it. be the ones who would do it, I feel like. Just <laughs> to tell remember, us about some pachinko. Do you remember the 2010 Konami press conference? It was like the most batshit thing. Okay, I'm just looking this up. This is the type of thing where people should Google it, but there was like Takfuji, the Japanese developer, was like doing wild stuff. It, it was this legendary thing. It was just extremely awkward and like cringy. It was just people doing weird things and saying weird things. Um, you got to just watch it. Just watch it. Maybe you can play a clip from it. Like uh, there's a line where they go one million troops or something like that. Maybe you can find a clip on YouTube and play a clip of it. All right. We'll see what we can do. Either people will hear a clip right now. Um, you can compete in the online leaderboards and the battle with the armies of the more than one million troops. One million troops. Wow. One million troops. Love you guys. Or they won't, and they'll just have to imagine it. Okay, fair enough. Um, so before we get started talking about the news and getting into a whole bunch of questions, um, you have a couple of things to say, but I wanted to bring up, have you caught up on Westworld? 
No, I'm a few episodes behind. Have you? Yeah, so I was going to say, I'm about three episodes or four episodes behind, and I have no desire to catch up, just based on what I've seen online, pe- the way people talk about it, and how they say that nobody, they can't understand anything, and it's all just muddled garbage. I'm just like, you know what, I think I'm just done with this show. So, huh. sadly, I don't think we'll be able to do a Westworld season finale pod, because I think I'm just not going to watch it. Oh, I'm definitely going to watch it, but actually, like, hearing that people are saying that makes me want to watch it more perversely, but... Of course um, it does. I respect your de- your desires to not see you it just anymore, like bad so. things. Isn't it all Shogun World stuff now? It's all Japanese, yeah, you know, but, medieval but Japan. Yeah, but apparently, I don't know, apparently it's all super confusing. And then one thing that I did watch last week and loved to death was American Vandal, which you told me to watch last year. I finally yes. got mm-hmm. to it, and it is incredible. It like starts off as this serial parody and then turns into this incredible teen drama that's hilarious and poignant and interesting. So highly recommended to all of our listeners. American Vandal, it's on Netflix. It's like an yeah, eight-part series. Yeah, I like it series. too. I think it was maybe an episode or two too long or something like that. There was only yeah. a, there were a couple times where I was like, okay, but so been is, at this so for are a all those time. crime docs. Yeah, like, I guess so, so, is so is every Netflix show. So yeah, is every that's Netflix also show true. ever. So fair yeah. enough. Um, so that's that's the good thing. The, the bad news is Westworld. The good news is American Vandal. Um, did you want to bring something up before we get into the news? Yeah, I had a couple of things to talk about. First is a minor correction from last week. Someone pointed this out to me on Twitter. We were talking about Peter Stormare when talking about Until Dawn, and I incorrectly uh, cited him as the train ghost, the subway ghost from the movie Ghost. He's not. I had remembered him as that, but he isn't. That was actually a, another veteran character actor named Vincent Schiavelli, mm. who is like another one of those total character actors who you'd know him the second you saw his face. He's in a million things. And that was more his heyday, and Peter Stormare was not that guy. Though maybe if they had made Ghost 10 years later, Peter Stormare would have been that guy. They have very similar DNA. But I thought that was kind of a funny mistake. I was so sure it was him. I was just I was sort of talking off the top of my head. Turns Is this out, like nope, the, different the character actor, the, the male character actor equivalent of Margot Martindale? And <laughs> of character actor Margot leftovers. Martindale? Yeah, and no, uh-huh. well, of confusing her and the one from The Leftovers. Patty yeah, Levin from um, The Leftovers. Uh, yeah, I, I think I bet I feel like character actors frequently just fall into this kind of thing. They have a sort of a type, but there's usually room for two of each yeah. type. In this case, it's weird, older white guy who's yeah. sort of gaunt and looks haunted. And that's <laughs> both of these actors kind of fulfill that fulfill that role. Also, Peter Stormare, very good in John Wick in the John ah. Wick movies. That was a that's another he does a great job in this. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention is the certain uh, robot assistant you and I have discussed at length, who we call Alexa. Alexander. Who you can't say because yeah we who we call Alexander on the show. It's even a good thing Jason you're listening just, to this on headphones, otherwise I would just keep saying <laughs> yeah. like Alexa, just keep breaking the rule. Turn um, on the we, lights. We well, I at least have the decency to not refer to her by her. Uh, actual I guess name our though. listeners are are having to deal with this. Uh. Yes, exactly. This is why <laughs> okay, we don't use the full name. As I was I was trying to explain before you literally interrupted me to say the name. Um, <laughs> who we refer to as Alexander? There's multiple <laughs> horrifying news stories about Alexander out there that I'm sure people have heard only because they're very they're the oh, very I kinds of these. oh you haven't no. oh man what so happened? well the main story is that a um there well one thing that's going around is that apparently the these receivers i think siri maybe as well but i know Al- uh, alexander can hear at uh, like really high frequency sounds that can be triggered in ways that we can't even hear because their microphones are capable of hearing that which makes them susceptible to hacking that's one thing that's a little bit um, gives me some pause. But the big story was a Portland couple, actually, in my in my hometown, um, fell, fell victim to, I'm quoting Gizmodo's right up here, fell victim to an, quote, unlikely string of events, unquote. This is, I believe, how Amazon described it, <laughs> where they were having a conversation. The 
uh, Alexander overheard their conversation and thought it told them to record a message, recorded them, and then thought it told them to send it to one of their contacts. So basically, they get uh, you know a message from one of their people in their contacts that Amazon has you know synced to the Alexander. They get a message from them saying, "Um, you should probably disconnect." your device because it just wow. sent us an overheard conversation you just the two of you were having in your living room so was it something that was like a sensitive conversation no and i think it was just them talking about some boring shit okay but i mean holy crap and you think about the things that you talk about and the fact that this thing is always listening to you i mean what a way to underline the fact that this thing is always listening and that the utility that you get out of it of being able to say its name same as with siri on your phone uh, does mean that it's listening to you all the time and that this is a thing that can happen. Apparently, they, it was like described as a very rare occurrence or something. But that's not <laughs> sure. very good. I mean, that it basically should be, this has never happened before and we're going to stop it from happening again. And it, that wasn't exactly their response. Their response was, oh, this is a very rare occurrence. It only <laughs> sometimes happens. It's almost so, like tech um, companies are, can be irresponsible with their power. Yeah, and like, you know, like we continue using this. We don't have any of our contacts in our Alexander, so there's no one it could send it to. But, it but you still, still do is, it. Yeah, we're so still using it. this doesn't make you less, like, want to just throw it out does. your... Oh, I mean, each of these stories makes me increasingly skeptical of the whole thing okay. and of using it, along with the fact that, to be frank, that this, it's not that great. I mean, it you know, we have it synced up to some of our lights through these smart plugs, and that's pretty cool. But even that is just a, you know, you can do that through an app. You don't have to have this thing listening to you all the time to do that. And yes, <laughs> this does definitely make me you double down on security on it and also just be increasingly skeptical of, of the whole thing. <laughs> Like, this is not worth it. Yeah, this is why I'll never get one. Yeah, it, it'd need to be a lot better, I think, for it to be super recommendable to a lot of people. It's right. It's kind of a gimmick, and now it's becoming, like, it's starting to feel like an increasingly uh, uh, fraught or risky gimmick that isn't really worth it. Yeah, time. a scary gimmick. It's a gimmick that might ruin your life by sending your talking shit about someone to that person. Yeah, to them, exactly. And, it, I mean, if, right, if you say someone's name, it, maybe, it would hear that name and maybe think, oh, okay, I'll send them this recording you just yeah. made. Yeah, man, yet another reason why I would never fucking have an Alexa because like who knows you never know who's really listening like for all the privacy like I assume that that everyone's reading everything I do anyway but I don't want to add more things to my home that could potentially do that um well that's uh disturbing news and speaking of disturbing news let's get to some good news (laughs) (laughs) speaking of disturbing news let's get to some not disturbing news yeah so we're gonna get through the news really quickly because we have a ton of questions to get through can i say pre-e3 mailbag before we get through the news really quickly i just want to point out that last week as i was editing our show i was laughing quite a bit about the fact that we started the news segment by saying okay lightning round and we made this big deal out of it and then we spent for friggin' ever on every single topic so um i think when we say we're going to get through the news quickly we're going to have to start living up to that or people are never going to believe anything we say again okay we're going to get through the news uh semi quickly we're going to get through the news at a leisurely pace How there you that? go we're going to we're going to go as fast as we go you know and deal with it okay so News item number one. We are going to get a new Fallout game later this year. Um, we although are? I guess wow, they I haven't heard said. That. Bethesda hasn't said uh, when it's coming out, but and I think later this year is safe to assume based on their 
previous uh, marketing release timings. Um, so here's the deal. So on Tuesday morning after Memorial Day weekend, Bethesda put up a teaser that said, please stand by in that Fallout style. And then they put up a Twitch stream that was literally just a bobblehead from Fallout, like but <laughs> just on a table. And they kept doing all these weird like trolley things, like people would walk in and out of the frame and it lasted for 24 hours. Hundreds of thousands of people watched it. I think the, fi- the, high, the peak was like 150 40, 150,000, something like that. Because um, people apparently like Fallout games. Who would have thought? Uh, yeah, weird. And then um, what happened was at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, 10 a.m. Eastern on Wednesday, the screen went blurry for a few minutes, and then Todd Howard came out and was like, here's the next thing we're working on. And then they showed this teaser trailer for a game called Fallout 76. And they haven't said what Fallout 76 is, but I've since reported that it's actually going to be a survival online RPG. So it's not a Fallout game in the traditional sense. It's not the traditional single-player open-world RPG that you would expect from a Fallout game. Although it sounds, from what I've heard, like it'll have quests and a story, and it'll feel very Fallout. It's not like they're just sticking this name on a Rust game or something like that. But it is very inspired by survival games and has the base building from Fallout 4, and uh, I think will feel very different than uh, your traditional Fallout RPG. So there's a lot of interesting things to unpack here. First of all, Kirk, would you play a game like this? Of course, sure. I yeah, I'd give any. I mean, I'd give anything Bethesda Game Studios does a chance. They generally yes. make good games, so they yeah, sure do. absolutely. Um, although Fallout Four was a little disappointing, I thought uh, it was the first Fallout game that I didn't really, or the first Bethesda Game Studios in a while that I didn't finish or like spend. I too would much actually time describe Fallout Four as quite disappointing. I thought yeah. it was disappointing. I mean, still had a lot going for it, but yeah, I was disappointed by it too. But I think in that, you know, with that in mind, the fact that. You know, they're changing the formula and trying something new is uh, actually a good thing. Like, exactly. That makes me think, yeah, great. I'll try something different. I'd rather that than just a Fallout 5. That's yes. just another. That's you know, just Fallout more 4. of the same, yeah. Yes, even that felt like Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas, and I've played a lot of those games. So Although it does mean that your new. prediction about The Elder Scrolls 6 being announced at E3 this year is not going to come true, sadly. I mean, it means maybe it won't come true, but we, that true. chicken has not hatched, or whatever the expression is, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Unless they're just like, concept art, this is coming three years from now, or something like that, because from mm-hmm. what I've heard, all of Bethesda's Maryland team, they're kind of all hands on deck on this thing, for the most part. I'm sure they have some people on pre-production and other stuff and they they are working on other things but um this is their big focus for this year um it's also being made not just by their main studio in maryland but also by their new studio in austin which actually used to be called battle cry do you remember that game when they announced it a few years ago um Mm -hmm. it was like a hero fighter combat type game like a multiplayer online game so that game got canceled um and bethesda announced in late 2015 around the time fallout 4 came out that battle cry was canceled Canceled, and what happened was that studio moved to this project. And it's to Bethesda's credit that instead of just shutting down the studio, they gave them a new project after their first game flopped um so kudos to those guys and yeah i'm curious to see this um there was an interesting thing i had some interesting dilemmas when it came to reporting on this game because i actually heard a little bit about what it was on tuesday while the teaser was going on and so i was thinking in my head okay like i don't really want to as as list, long-time listeners of split screen know um our perspectives on like leaking leaks and reporting on unannounced games have evolved over time and i've kind of moved towards the camp of like i don't really want to 
spoil announcements just for the sake of spoiling announcements. I don't really see much value to that these days. Um, so I was thinking, okay, I'll just let them have their announcement Wednesday morning because I knew it was going to come the following morning. And then they announced it and they didn't actually say what it was. And at that point, it's like when you see this company building up hype with this game, making everyone think it's going to be a new Fallout game when it's actually something else and taking pre-orders, it feels almost like I would be negligent to not tell people what I've heard about this game. So at that point, I felt like, okay, you know what? I have to ask around some more, find out what I can and be able to share that with people. So that was my thinking throughout this whole thing it was just kind of an interesting uh little little inside baseball there for people a little looking peek into the reporter's notebook you might say so i let me ask you based on what you've heard are you excited about this game do you think it sounds cool yeah i mean i've never really gotten into a survival game but if i were to get into a survival game it would be fallout and one thing that i Mm. think is interesting about this is that like every survival game we've seen so far rust daisy uh arc they've all been very janky early access type of things with very small studios. This is something that's been in development for years. It's going to come out as a fully shipped product. Um, it's going to be something that is that has the backing of a multi-million dollar studio as opposed to like 10 guys in a house somewhere. And while Bethesda obviously doesn't have a reputation for making super polished games um, and their, their open world games have been traditionally very buggy, um, I think that this will still be like something a little different than the 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 survival game experience that people are used to um so i'm very curious to see it like this is if i'm going to play a survival game it will be a fallout game because i love that series and i think it's really good one interesting tidbit i thought that you noted in your piece about this was that this is set significantly sooner after the apocalypse that led to the wasteland becoming the wasteland in mm-hmm. earlier fallout games those tend to be about 200 years after the vaults closed this is closer to what's the number it's much much sooner so the world will be wilder and more dangerous which mm-hmm. you know could make this feel just a little bit different which would be yeah maybe, very which would be different. nice yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, maybe not. Maybe it'll feel the same no matter what. But it seems like it opens the door to that at least, which is which is cool. I, I feel like it it has to feel different because it's not like they have time. Like if you think about Fallout Three and Fallout Four, they these many of these cities were built over decades, if not hundreds of years, because those two games took place two hundred years after the war, and this takes place uh, two twenty years after the war. So I don't even think they would have cities. Like you would have to build the cities, and right. they could actually make some interesting ties, like. I think it's going to be set, they hinted that it was set in West Virginia, so I guess that's not super close to D.C., but, like, imagine if you built your own version of Megaton or something like that, or, mm-hmm. like, some other, like, landmark or something. Um, there are some really cool things they could do with this, and, yeah, I'm very excited to see it. So we'll see it in just uh, a week and a half, I guess, at E3, at their press conference on Sunday night. Um, so, yeah, I'm very excited. For, for that and I know it's not like exactly what Fallout fans want and what like people with like who love massive RPGs want but I will totally give it a chance um yeah. Speaking of things that uh, are take take a series in weird new directions that are not exactly what people are expecting, uh, Pokemon also got some new game announcements this week. So this is news item number two. So I'm going to have to break this down because there are a few different elements of this. 
I would appreciate that if only because I've loosely been paying attention to this and I think I know the gist of everything, but I'd love to hear more detail from you. Okay, so first of all, I'll start with the Vegas thing, but also what might be the most important thing to core Pokemon fans is that they said there is a core proper Pokemon game, the next generation of games, um, in fall 2019 for Switch. So that's the number one. Number two is that a game just came out. uh, It was released as it was announced on the eShop for Switch, and it's called Pokemon Quest, and it's like a mobile-style, free-to-start game uh, with uh, very chibi, cute, blocky graphics and kind of pared-down gameplay. And then the proper announcement that they made, the games that are coming this year to the Switch, are called Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee. And what these are is they're based on the original Pokemon games, Red and Blue, and they're actually closer to Yellow, which was the game where um, it was kind of like a, a, a new entry in the Red-Blue series. As you know, like whenever there's a pair of Pokemon games, they're both the same game, but just like a few different things. Like mm-hmm. a few different Pokemon in each one. Um, mm-hmm. Yellow was the same world and game except uh, with its own different traits one of those being that Pikachu would follow you around and he would play this element in the game and so this is a similar sort of thing where Pikachu or Eevee depending which version you get will follow you around or ride on your shoulder and stuff and you'll go collect the the 151 basic Pokemon but it's very different it's also got co-op the trailer they showed shows people uh, holding two switch controllers two different people and like playing together and it has this Pokemon Go connectivity where uh, connectivity. Wow. Um, You got there. I got almost got there. Yeah, well, eventually got there. Where uh, you can transfer your Pokemon from Pokemon Go to the games and you catch Pokemon by doing like motion controls, sort of like in Pokemon Go. So it's clearly meant for uh, a younger audience or people who just really love Pokemon Go. And it's all designed to like be connected to Pokemon Go and to play off the massive popularity of Pokemon Go and turn it into a game. So this isn't exactly what fans are hoping for, but I'm sure some Pokemon, I'm not a Pokemon fan at all but i'm sure some pokemon fans will find this really cool and some will be like okay whatever it's like a stopgap while we wait for the next proper rpg in the series so as a new new kind of new nintendo fan who loves his switch do you think you will play these games no no not really (laughs) i mean i no i I might play i might play the 2019 one like you know i played a little bit of uh, sun and moon and a little bit of why and I just you know I don't really get into the games I, I've tried yep. there are just so many other things to play that they're not really my thing and since I didn't grow up with them and I don't kind of have that connection there it just doesn't grab me in the way mm-hmm. that I know that it grabs so many people it yep. does seem like a smart move to have these short term games out to have sort of planned out this launch schedule that they have and definitely to tie to Pokemon Go, something that's on the Switch, only because, you know, as we've noted multiple times, as much as we don't write about Pokemon Go all the time, and that show, or that game, you know, it's sort of faded from the video game enthusiast press landscape a little bit. It's still a really, really popular game that's uh-huh. been constantly updated and changed, and a lot of people still play it, so it makes total sense for them to do this. Yeah, oh yeah, it's still massive, it's still gargantuan, and I think I saw a stab that like it was in the top 10 of mobile games for 2017, the year after oh, yeah. it came out. that so doesn't surprise me at all. It's still humongous. Um, yeah, absolutely, and I think this is a smart move of Nintendo to do like, hey, we're doing this weird experimental thing, and also we're doing proper Pokemon games next year. It's gonna be, I mean, this year, 
is just between that and Smash Brothers, it just feels like they're destined to just sell another bazillion Switches. Like there's- It's funny because that, you know, Pokemon and Smash are both things that I'm not super into. And given that last year was just this absurd, you know, hard rain of amazing Switch games that are in the franchises I like. We got a new Zelda and a new Mario, yeah. and, you know, ports of all these really great games that were so good on Switch. You know, this year is less exciting for me. And I think I've seen this voice by other people too. I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, but you're right that those two series are super, super popular among sometimes just a whole different group of people. Uh-huh. And having those games on the Switch will be huge for the Switch in the long term. Yeah. And also, if you it, just as a Switch owner and as someone who likes the system, I think that if, if, if you're into the system, you want it to do well because the more right. millions of Switches get out there, the more publishers will be like, oh man, I have to put my game on this platform and therefore the, mm-hmm. the bigger the library will get and you'll start seeing more and more ports of third-party games and all sorts of other good stuff. Um, so yeah, and I'm sure they'll have, Nintendo will have other cool stuff for this year at E3 that we don't know, like have no idea. Metroid, about. Metroid Prime. Yeah, the, Metroid Prime Trilogy. That's I'm what still, I want, man. Yeah. Metroid Prime Trilogy on Switch more than anything a, else. I think that's a good a good expectation a good prediction um all right news item number three um valve removes school shooter game from steam so there is this game called active shooter um call that came out on uh uh, steam recently and it was about like being an active shooter um let me at a school not just not just any active shooter. yeah it was you would be i'm just looking at the the Oh no! Maybe it was just a now. mass shooting game. And, I haven't yeah, actually you played were supposed this. to. It was like you're holding a gun and you play as uh, a. So you, oh yeah, you can switch to between like a shooter or a SWAT team member who's trying to stop the shooter or a civilian. And the trailer just has someone like murdering teachers in a school, um, and people were just like calling for for uh, uh, it to be removed from Steam and criticizing it because it seemed to be in bad taste. Um, and the developers of the game said this game does not promote violence. We wanted to promote awareness, um, and Valve removed it um i believe this week they just uh removed it um and they said that the developer of the game is a quote troll who has a quote history of customer abuse publishing copyrighted material and user review manipulation this was in a statement to kotaku's nathan grayson um so they figured out like while they were investigating this controversy they figured out that he was that the guy who made it was had this long history of trolling and whatnot. Um, but actually, I think there's an interesting question there. Like, if you're, uh, uh, if we believe that games are art and can be whatever they want to be, do you think that it's okay for? Do you think that Valve should allow a game about an active shooter to be on Steam? I think, I mean, I, I, I have not made up my mind how I feel about that particular it's question. It's a tough question, right? Like, I don't but, want to put you on the spot here, but it's like an interesting debate is like, if something, if we believe that games are art and can, and should have a message and should say whatever they want to say, shouldn't that also mean like that we shouldn't believe in censorship of controversial things? Well, I mean, th- I think that that raises a number of other related questions mm-hmm. that are equally challenging and equally important. For example, you know, you said censorship. Obviously, you're using the word kind of broadly. Government censorship is the only thing that actually counts as censorship. Yeah, if fair. they're not being censored by the government, they're not being censored. However, given that these platform holders like Valve and like, you know, Apple is another good example, um, you know, have the ability to just pull the plug on a game and, you know 
basically deprive it of a massive audience that uh-huh. it could have gotten. That's not exactly censorship, but it kind of is. It is We've because seen, they have so much control over the PC Right, market. so the more of these mega platform holders, same way that if Comcast decided, oh no, your TV show can't broadcast right. you know, on Comcast networks, you're, that kind of fucks you. You know, that, that sort of thing... Ah, there are so many related topics to this. There were a couple parallel stories to this. The fact that Apple pulled Valve's Steam streaming app uh-huh. from their store uh-huh. um, was kind of was because kind of a could, funny. I believe they said it was because you could buy games within it without going right. To the I think app it was because yeah, because it, it violated some of their terms in a way that was sort of related to competition. Um, so there's that, which is just sort of an ironic and interesting parallel that these two companies that both do the same thing. I mean, Apple has infamously pulled games, even games that were critical of Apple. Apple's manufacturing you know, yep. practices um, have been pulled from Apple's store with little explanation, raising a lot of the same concerns. Uh, you know, obviously, in this case, this game is abhorrent, is morally awful, made by someone who appears to just be kind of awful. And so it's a much easier case to just be like, well, fuck them, get them off there. But right. you're right that in, in abstract, the principle still applies. And, I mean, I, you know, there's also this parallel story of the visual novels that Steam has been pulling, some of them explicit with adult content, and then you're seeing GOG.com is sort of stepping in to say, well, we'll sell these visual novels on our service. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have a kind of a competitor coming in and saying, well, we're not going to hold things to the same standard, or we're going to sell things that you won't, possibly opportunistically, also maybe, you know, related to some principle that they have. So. Uh-huh. In that story, as in a lot of things related to Valve and Apple and all of these companies, it tends to be a good thing when there isn't this not non like a near monopoly, an almost monopoly. I don't know what you want to call it. When one one company doesn't have almost. that much power, I think power. it is a monopoly. I think well, it's see, Valve up. doesn't have a monopoly. I mean, there's there are other ways to buy PC games online. It's not a monopoly. A mono- but, but a monopoly doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only way to do something, at least according to... I believe that antitrust law in the U.S. doesn't mean... Well, I guess... Okay, so I guess the definition of monopoly is exclusive possession or control of some sort of supply Yeah, you can trade, be found... I think you'd be, be found in violation of antitrust laws without, without being found to be a monopoly. A monopoly. Got it, so got yeah, it. I would not describe Valve as a monopoly. But, got it. But anyways, I mean, yeah, this, these are all really big topics obviously if we're moving quickly through the news um they're, they're complicated round, ones no we're I think moving that, semi-leisurely we're having a leisurely oh that's right through the I, news. that's right i forgot we're taking our time i yeah so you know i haven't played this game it seems like trash to me i am not shedding any tears over active shooter being right. pulled from steam um but you know yeah i think it does it does raise a lot of those questions there are yeah i mean ultimately the problem is when one company has so much power over a single marketplace that causes issues but um yeah it'll be uh it'll be interesting to see like how valve continues to evolve it's also kind of a problem that valve's communication is so subpar and and the way they like seem to be seem to have issues all the time just like telling people okay this is why we did this this is why we did this you know what i mean yeah, well, the, so the quote they gave to Nathan that he, at the end of his article is interesting because they said basically the reason they pulled this game was not related to content. It was related right. to the developer's right. history. But they did say to Nathan, the broader conversation about Steam's yes. content policies is one that we'll be addressing soon. That's the quote. So maybe we'll hear more from them about that and mm-hmm. let's have to see what they say. Very true. Okay, that's a good note to end on. Let's take a quick break and then we will come back and take some reader questions. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. 
The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hey, I'm Melissa Kirsch, Editor-in-Chief of Lifehacker. And I'm Alice Bradley, Lifehacker's Deputy Editor. And we're the hosts of Lifehacker's podcast, The Upgrade. On The Upgrade, we help you improve your life one week at a time. We talk to guests like former hacker Hector Monsegur about online security. You need to be aware of how you can be attacked. You need to be aware of what's your weakness. And Alan Alda on how to communicate more effectively. And in order to achieve that, we start with teaching exercises derived from improvisation. And sex therapist Steven Snyder about how to have great sex in a long-term relationship. What really works under those circumstances is if you enjoy the other person selfishly. Hey, your life, it's terrible. We can help. <laughs> Find The Upgrade wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. It is time, as always. Well, I guess as normally, as once in a while. It is time. Yeah, as occasionally. As occasionally to uh, answer some listener questions. So this is kind of a pre-E3 themed mailbag that we're going to talk about. We got some whole bunch of questions in here. Hopefully we get through them all. Um, as always, you can reach us at splitscreen at kotaku.com. Um, we got a couple of questions that are like, what do you think x company will do or what do you think y company will do at e3 um and we'll be addressing all of that next week when we do our annual e3 predictions episode and you and i will go through each conference and talk about those so for now we're going to do other questions um let's jump in do you want to start us off with the first one sure let me uh let me let me see what cameron has to say Cameron writes, Hey Kirk and Jason, longtime listener, first time emailer. Thank you so much for a great podcast. You have both given some great suggestions and insight over the last year and a half or so. Never would have watched the marvelous Mrs. Maisel without Kirk's pushing, and Jason's book has completely changed the way I play video games. You've also both inspired me and my fiance to finally pony up for HBO so we can watch the leftovers. This is great. This <laughs> good is just great to hear that we're we're good spreading call. good content to people. Cameron writes, I recently found myself video game industry adjacent. I'm an editorial intern with Boss Fight Books. Very cool outfit, by the way. That's me talking. Okay, this is Cameron. And a staff writer for The Completionist, a, staff, a successful YouTuber. I'll be going to E3 this time for the first time 
and with what I guess are media credentials. Any advice on how to approach the show as someone who wants to have a great time, but also is interested in PR and producing as as potential career paths? Or should I just bring my Vita and play as many games as I can while standing in line for the big publishers? If you would have told eighth grade me he'd one day be going to E3 for work, he'd have had a heart attack. Crazy how life changes. If you guys are in LA for the convention, and he leaves some recommendations. He recommends the Seven Grand, which is a whiskey bar that I don't know. And I won't be at E3 this year, but... Uh, I would probably go to a good whiskey bar if I were. Um, and then closes by saying, thanks so much. Really hoping Jason has to play Bloodborne next year. <laughs> you know what, Cameron? I also hope that. I kind of want to play Bloodborne next year, too. It's not... I feel like you're winning this, our little game. And <laughs> I don't know. I, know. I don't know. I don't mind like the idea of playing Bloodborne. I'm totally okay with that. But I just am going to be really mad if you don't have to play Secret too. I thought so. you are going to be like, I just don't like losing. <laughs> well, that's also part of it. Anyway, to answer Cameron's question, advice for how to approach the show. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. So one of the things about E3 is that like, if you're not going as press, it can be kind of shitty because you wind up waiting online for three hours to just go and watch a 10 minute demo of something. And you don't even get to play it. You just get to watch a theater presentation. And then you're like, Oh man, I can't believe I just spent half a day on this. Um, So actually, my advice for E3 is to go and just kind of walk around and not wait online on things and just try to find the little games that are in the corner that nobody's playing and talk to the developers because I feel like that's a lot more interesting just to be like, hey, is this your game? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about making games than it is to wait online for hours just to see the next uh, big EA game or whatever on a big screen or like get a a Battlefield session for 20 minutes. It it just doesn't seem worth it to me. um, so that's generally my advice. My advice is also that like the the best way to do networking at E3 is to just like have random conversations with people. I guess one advantage of waiting online, and I've never done this because I never really have to wait online since I have appointments back to back to back all the time. But um, I guess if you're waiting online, you can just strike up a conversation with the people nearby you and, and meet someone interesting maybe. But in general, I think that just like talking to people and meeting people and I don't know, go to the cafeteria and, and see if you meet someone interesting or like strike up a conversation especially if you're there for networking um if you can go to like the various parties and events that's a really good thing to do um oftentimes people are just hanging out like video game industry people are just hanging out at the various hotels around the convention after e3 um the fig is the most infamous hangout spot um and the marriott has been a pretty cool hangout spot so yeah that's my general advice do you have advice for e3 people who want to network um, yeah, they're similar to yours, so I don't really go to E3 anymore, at least I haven't gone in a couple of years. When was the last time you went? 2015? A few 16? years ago, yeah, I don't know. Um, a little while ago. So, I, my advice would mainly be, yeah, similar to what you said, go to IndieCade, go to check out the indie stuff, only because it's much more approachable. Yeah. The developers are actually right there, you can just talk to people, and also those people are all really interesting uh-huh. and cool. Even the people, you know, sort of moderating the whole thing and helping you around tend to be indie developers themselves, or, you know, are involved in games. And exactly. If you just if you want to meet interesting people, talk to them. I would also say I agree that not waiting in line for stuff seems like a good way to go. I also, you know, acknowledge that I don't really know what that experience is like because every time I've gone to E3, it's been professionally as press and I've just like you said just gone to appointments. So, if you want to do that, or if you think that would be fun, that can be okay. My advice then would be try to go to stuff that's playable mm-hmm. and 
in some cases, go read previews on sites like Kotaku to find out sort of what the gist is of the game. Because, you know, we all go to those games, or if we don't go, you know, IGN goes or whoever, um, Polygon goes, and you'll see previews of those games on their site. And you can get a sense of, okay, we went into a theater, and then the executive producer talked to us, and they showed us this level. And if that sounds cool to you, fine. But right, a lot of that time, you're going to be able to watch this stuff on YouTube a few Mm -hmm. days later, so it's not worth it. But then there are times where it's a new game that you're really psyched about, and you can go play it like i remember i don't know mirror's edge 2 i was excited about that at the time wound up being a disappointing game but it was cool to get to go and then we actually got to play some of the game and run around and that felt fun if i had just been there you know to to see things that i liked i think it would have been a cool feeling to walk out of that demo being like i played mirror's edge 2 and i have thoughts about it yeah so you know in time at times i'm sure it's a long line for that game but maybe it can be worth it especially if you've made some friends you want to wait in line yeah especially if you're there for all three days and you're like well you know what what else am i gonna do during this chunk of the day right, I don't have anything right. else yeah yeah there's That's not even point. there's not really that much to do on the E3 right. show floor other than go see games and at some point you're going to run out of stuff that there isn't a line for so yeah very true yeah but yeah and you can always find something cool hidden in the back somewhere like there are always little indie games and booths and stuff yeah. like throughout um also <laughs> Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say Sony too. and Microsoft's uh, booths. Well, I guess Microsoft is elsewhere this year. They're at the Microsoft Theater, but but they always have uh, a bunch of kiosks with indie games that you can and you can yeah. often find unattended ones. You can just jump on and play. Yeah, the hardware people in the weird hardware area are also cool. There tends to just be a couple of people who are like, here's a toilet seat you can use to play video games. This is our new idea. And they're almost always desperate to talk to people. And sometimes they can be a little overly, you know, they want to talk to you forever because not no one's really back there. But sometimes you'll just find something really weird or interesting or find interesting people, you know, selling cool things. So that can uh-huh. be another good place to look. Yes. Um, all right. Next question. Robert asks, of the biggest hyped games slated for release this year, which are you most skeptical about? And what you need to see in order to ease some of your worries also is there a game that may be flying under the radar that should get more attention so Hmm. two questions which are which games are you most skeptical about and what would you need to see in order to raise their worries and is there a game that may be flying under the radar you want to go first or should i I don't have great answers to the second one because I don't really know what's... I don't know about the radar anymore. I feel like out of touch with the radar. I don't know what's under the radar and what's not. You're Um, you're staying off Twitter for a while. I've been off Twitter a lot, yeah. So maybe I'm not... My my radar isn't super uh, calibrated. Well, I have a good answer to that one, which is... Okay, what's your answer to that? What's under the radar? Octopath Traveler. Okay. That's definitely not under my radar because it isn't under your radar. Right. I talk about it all the time, but I don't think people are paying enough attention to that. And I think it could be like a fantastic JRPG. Um, Mm. Well, that's just me. Um, I have a good answer for the biggest hype games and what I'm most skeptical about. And the answer to that is, is of course, Red Dead Redemption 2. Yeah, I was going to probably say the same thing. Yeah, I've been worried about that one. And and cautiously optimistic i guess but i feel like we need to see it in action and we need to see how it feels to play and what they've done that's different from the first one and what they've done that's the same and just how it all feels and how it's all coming together um i'm kind of worried that all we've seen so far is just like exclusive preview footage from breedless press without actual gameplay footage or exclusive 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 preview coverage but not actual footage um so, yeah, I'm worried about that one, and hopefully we see more soon. Yeah, at least a little skeptical of that one, I would say. Like, yeah. I'm, you know, I, Rockstar has a pretty good track record. They That's clearly true. throw a ton of man hours and resources at their games, so it'll be a really polished AAA game, probably almost certainly. But yes. I, I'm with you that I'm just a little skeptical that it's going to really grab my attention or, or make me, 
yeah make me care that much yeah i'm I'm also worried about um uh uh anthem i'm just worried about it in general um yeah you and everyone else hope yeah i mean that seems like an obvious answer but also cautiously optimistic i know we're gonna see a lot of that uh at ea play um which is the one that starts on saturday and what else there's some other big things that i'm like a little bit like hmm i hope this is really good kingdom hearts 3 i hope that is uh is as good as people want it to be that game just does nothing for me. I've watched the footage of it. I'm just not yeah, a Kingdom you're Hearts not a, guy. I mean, I'm not a huge Kingdom Hearts fan either. We'll it just talk looks about like a PS2 when game whenever I see footage of it. I'm yeah, like, I mean, it, like it just looks game. fun. It just looks like fun, fun yeah. to play. Um, yeah, I guess. I hope it's good. Um, what else? Yeah, I think that those are my main ones uh, for now. I guess we'll see more at E3. And, yeah, and, and see, I should say, like, my... And I'm, I'm not even skeptical of Kingdom Hearts. It's not that. It's just that that, that game doesn't... Like, that series doesn't really do anything for me, so... Uh, you know, I think it. Have you played like any of them? Like it. No, not really. I played okay. a little bit of one, maybe it's somewhere, but just enough okay. to be like, oh, okay, I get it. This is just a kind of a console action RPG. Yeah, that's fair. Um, all right, you want to do the next one? Sure. This is from Scott. Is it Scott? Oh, yes, this is from Scott. Scott says, Hey, Kirk and Jason, my question might be too basic for the show, but I'll ask it anyways. Scott, as evidenced by the fact that I'm reading this on the show, it was not too basic for the show, so good job. Here is Scott's question. Is E3 important for the gaming industry? What purpose does it actually serve? Obviously, it generates hype for games, but with as much gaming coverage as there is now, does it make sense, or does it make much of a difference compared to games that aren't announced at E3? What do you think? So, well, you, there's also a PS part. PS, I really loved the Secret Hunters of Destiny episode yeah. you did, and I'm looking forward to what you guys do yeah. next. Cheers. We liked doing that. <laughs> Shout so. out to Secret Hunters of Destiny. Um, okay, so there are a few different questions here, a few different things to unravel. So is E3 important for the gaming industry? So what a lot of people don't realize is that E3 is extremely important for people behind the scenes because as all of the sizzle and glamour of the show floor and the press conference is going on, um, which is what we all see from home, uh, while that's all happening developers and publishers are taking all sorts of meetings behind closed doors where developers might pitch their games to publishers. Publishers might um, meet with retailers to show off their new games and be like, hey, Walmart, this is why you should stack Fallout 76 in front of your store this year as opposed to the other things. And then EA might come and say, no, you should put Battlefield 5 in front of your store. Um, so there are all sorts of meetings like that that happen in E3. Um, it's also the only time where a lot of like international people might be in town, publishers and developers and executives, and that they're all going to be taking plenty of meetings. So there's a lot of stuff going on that we just don't see, the kind of like shadow side of E3. Um, as for the actual parts we see, the press conferences and the announcements and the trailers and demos and all that um, hypey stuff, um, I think it's still pretty important. I think it still gives the video game industry this feeling of like this annual mecca, um, even though things have changed so much over the years. And nowadays there's like a stream of announcements all year long. It's still, there's still something essential about it i think and there's still something that is like if you're a developer a small developer and you get picked to uh show your game in a sizzle reel at sony's e3 conference that's like the biggest deal in the world that will get you so many more eyeballs or like um if you just make a big splash at e3 that might change the course of your game forever so yeah i mean i think it it is pretty important so what do you think 
So I'm more just weary of and skeptical of E3 in general. I, yeah. I don't f- have a lot of use for it, even though it's fun professionally just to have a whole lot happening and to, to get to just work a lot and write a lot and have a lot of people reading the site. Uh-huh. I'm less excited by E3. And I do think basically E3 is a marketing event, right? And it's a it's a in total a marketing event that combines aspects of press, you know, of a press event with aspects of a business and like, like you said, a retail, you know, deal doing um, business event. So in taken as a total as a marketing event, it is still absolutely useful for all of these companies that I don't really care about. And these retailers making dealers deals and all this stuff that we don't really cover and is not, you know, really my thing. Uh-huh. Um, as a press event, I think the press aspect of it is fading in relevance. That doesn't mean much for E3 because it's so relevant in all those other ways that you've already, you've already explained. But it does seem to be, you know, like I think that the, the question of does, you know, does it make much of a difference compared to games that aren't announced at E3? Sometimes that's true. Sometimes Sometimes that's not. Obviously, we've seen major, you know, Rockstar can do whatever they want. They can announce a game whenever they want. Clearly, Bethesda can do whatever they want. They can announce a new Fallout game whenever they want. Mm-hmm. There are also indie developers who announce games, you know, and the game sounds good enough or the developer has a good enough track record that it's exciting even if it isn't announced at E3. Or there are alternate outlets like the Video Game Awards that Jeff does in, mm-hmm. you know, in December. There are well, other places. Well, that's like the, the E3 of December. Well, but I mean, like, just I'm saying there are other, there are other, you know, press events that, sure. that are, you know, ma- yeah. made for doing that. And sure. the Video Game Awards don't double as a marketing, you know, a deal-making publisher's event mm-hmm. in the same way that E3 does. So, I guess I see the fade, I see fading relevance on the press front, but I, but given how important it is on all those other aspects, I don't think it's going anywhere. It's just gonna, you know, we're gonna c- continue to see more and more news and more and more announcements throughout the year happening outside of e3 yeah i mean we already saw with sony they kind of tempered expectations and we'll talk about this more next week but they essentially said hey we have these four first party games um last of us 2 ghost of tsushima spider-man and and um death stranding and then we're not going to announce any others so that might be true it might be a lie but regardless it's them saying hey this isn't what you should expect like you shouldn't expect a bunch of megatons or whatever so yeah mm-hmm. it's it's interesting times um all right let's get to the next question um David says, Hi, Kirk and Jason. I'm curious about two of the big titles that will be previewed at E3, Anthem and The Division 2. Do you think games like these can be reviewed in a better way than Destiny 2? Destiny 2 came out. Most outlets enjoyed the story a lot and said it was an improvement over Destiny 1. Soon, it became, an, it became apparent that it was actually a step back from Destiny 1, and the game had a lot of problems. Is it possible for launch day reviews to address these sorts of issues, or should reviews of service games be treated as works in progress? Basically, how should reviews function in a world of games as a service? Thanks so much. So first, I just want to say that the ideal way to review Destiny 2 is to write a super long fictional story about yes. multiple characters. Fan fiction. And their, and their many complicated reactions to a, to a flawed but interesting and in some ways better, in some ways worse game. I'm mostly joking, but um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I do get what David is asking. I don't know. What do you think of this? You, you've thought a lot about <laughs> games as a service. What, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that it's, uh, it's a tricky question that we're all asking all the time. I think that reviews 
can definitely it's obsolete to think of reviews as static works that you just publish and then never touch again or never think about again and i think that the idea of games as a service should really be coupled with reviews as a service but mm. just calling something like destiny 2 the kotaku review and then writing another article that's like destiny 2 or updating that and bumping it up on the page or like doing destiny 2 uh, one month later i mean it's not really clear how what the best approach to do it is we've been playing around with this stuff called um, one month later or six months later or whatever we've been you might have seen headlines like that on kotaku because we're playing around with that idea but the the short version is all of these games need to be treated as works in progress absolutely and we as journalists and critics need to be covering these games continuously as we have been for years like kotaku as some people might remember was the first outlet to be like hey we are going to focus on post-launch coverage because the the future of games is the present of games and rather than focus on what's coming next we're going to look at the interesting stories in the games that are out now um but destiny 2 is such an interesting example because when you play that game and you play through the campaign and you spend uh, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 hours playing through it, you're like, hey, this is pretty good. This is way better than what Destiny 1 was like. And then it's not until weeks or even months later where you see the problems and the end game issues start to emerge. And it's clear that it doesn't have the longevity of the first game. Um, that's a really tough question to answer because it's like, do we wait to review it? Like, should we have waited two months to review Destiny? Your, no, your review I mean, I don't think that's, obviously a, that's something... not a tough question to answer. I think the answer no, to that is yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My point is, uh, this might be a more relevant question for outlets that use review scores or like give buying recommendations because our reviews can be a lot more experimental and interesting and nuanced and they don't have to be like, you should buy this game. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, uh, when you put a review score on something, it adds that whole like area aura of definitiveness that really can never be there with the games as a service. So, I mean, really, the answer to this question is that nobody should use review scores because in an, in a world of games as a service, those are even more irrelevant. Yeah, it's the sort of the answer. I mean, I've thought about this a lot as I've been covering Destiny over the last coming up on four years. Um, I reviewed the first Destiny. I think, well, I think my review of the first Destiny holds up. It was a review. It was a moment in time. I don't see that review as a review as a service, and I don't think that it would be valuable to approach that as something that should be updated and changed. I mm-hmm. remember actually you and I talking about that at some point where I was, you know, doing a doing a four months later write up, you know, way after when Destiny had first come out um, in 2014. And I decided not to and instead wrote an update and then I added a little link. So if you're Googling and you want a review of Destiny, you will see, you know, I've added this these series of notes that are like, right. here's what I think four months later, here's what right. I think a year later, um, you know, and letting the original review stand. It is, I think, on critics and reviewers to be able to write in this new landscape, and we should be familiar enough with video games and and have played enough of these service games to understand what it means to play a game at launch and to contextualize that for readers in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that that's an impossible task. You just have to write differently. You have to approach the concept of evaluating a game differently because you're evaluating something that's different. You were aware that it's going to change. You've done this before. It isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, I've been playing Destiny for four years now, so... You know, I think I handled it pretty well then. My my coverage has changed over the years, and I've adjusted my approach. Obviously, Destiny 2 was a really experimental review, and that was partly just me wanting to try something different. But even Which in the I coverage love, since the way, then... I'm so all for experimenting with reviews. Yeah, right. And I think especially given in the context of ongoing, constant coverage of the game, I mean, I'm still writing about Destiny 2. So, yeah, of course. So, you know, in that context, yeah, you can take some chances. And I would say... I. I 
I feel that I've probably earned the right to do that over years of covering the game. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in general, like with The Division, for example, uh, that's a more straightforward game. That's a game that I reviewed as well, covered for a while after launch, definitely changed, definitely became much more clearly disappointing and frustrating to people a little while after it came out, um, then has had a renaissance that I haven't been covering. And actually, Steven Totillo has been doing a pretty good job covering for Kotaku when he has time to play. But one of the challenges with these games is that there's never time to play. I mean, The Division is and this so many dream- of them. There's so many, and that game is just so dramatically different, but when I go back into The Division now, I'm, it's immediately evident to me that I'm a good 30 or 40 hours away from even unlocking the stuff yeah. that I would need to have to understand what it is now. So, I, you know, yes, this is a process. I do think that reviewers is just need to be better writers and need to be, or better is not the right word, need to be more conscientious of how games are different now and to evaluate them in different terms and in less definitive terms. And yes, definitely review scores are an archaic definitive thing that just does not apply when you're talking about something like Destiny or The Division or, you know, I'm assuming Anthem or, you know, whatever any of these any of these games as a service will be. Yeah, so it's that's, just hilarious yeah. that there's going to be a review score for The Division 2 and Anthem and it'll just be hilarious to look back. I like looking I think at it's a, Destiny I think we are watching score now is hilarious. Don't you th- I think that we're in a long process of that becoming increasingly clear to more people because it's so evidently a problem with yeah. the way that people are evaluating that we'll just see more and more people not applying review scores to reviews of games like that. Yeah, well, but, you know, interesting trend by the way, totally mm-hmm. unrelated is that Detroit become human. I saw people pointing out the fact that the reviews that scored it all gave it like 7 through 10 and it had like high metacritic scores and the games that didn't score it all just slammed it. So what happened was the games that scored it were just way more positive on it than the games that didn't score it, which was just a couple an interesting funny trend man, to see. random just funny thoughts on Detroit Become Human. First of all, so I've got a few people telling me, "Oh, you're wrong about that game." Whatever. Mostly people being like, "I haven't played it yet, but I thought your review just seemed unfair." I haven't played which, it yet, but I have a PS4 avatar, yeah. so. Well, or just like you know, I was turned off by something about your review, which I guess fair enough. But um, one thing I've been really struck by about that game is that I have seen no discussion of it. Have you seen anyone talking about it this week? Barely, I mean, no. nothing. It, reviews hit. The game came out. People have been playing it. I just haven't seen anything. So that tells me something about how I mean, I don't think that game's very interesting, and there's not much really to say about it other than it's right. just not very imaginative or good. But um, I just have thought that that's interesting. That is interesting. And then, and then also just yeah, I. I, I, the the whole idea of like a Metacritic, like people giving that game high scores and then not, you know, like giving it, you know, the people who give it bad reviews basically didn't have to score it. It makes me think back to my Beyond Two Souls review, which um, I reread while I was working on um, my review of Detroit. So Beyond Two Souls, for those who don't know, this is David Cage and Quantic Dream's last game, the one starring Ellen Page. Um, I've seen actually people have said, oh, you have an agenda against David Cage or something, which read that review because I don't, because I kind of liked that game and I gave, <laughs> it a, I gave it a yes when we were still doing yes and no. Uh-huh. But even that is a really funny, I know this is a tangent, but even that is a funny um, illustration of why the yes, no process that we used to have the system where we would give a game a yes or a no or a not yet. Uh-huh. And so it was this very binary recommendation. And eventually we got rid of it. That was when I was deputy editor. Actually, I was very strongly ag- uh, like in favor of getting rid of this system because I hate it yeah and i think the beyond review is a really good example of why because when you read when i read the review now there's this huge section at the beginning where i say okay i'm really conflicted about whether i want to recommend this game because uh-huh. i think it's flawed but i also think it's cool so here's
here's my deal. And I do this big bullet pointed breakdown. That's just lame. Like, it's just me saying, you know, oh, you'll like this game if you like this, but you won't like it if you don't like that, which I just don't like doing that kind of thing where uh-huh. I'm you know, telling you you'll like it if you're this person, you won't like it. It's just not, that's not usually how I approach reviews, but I'm doing that because I'm giving the game a yes, even though I, I had a lot of problems with it. I overall liked it enough. Anyways, random tangent well that's about the same part of it. it's the same and, like uh hoop jumping that your brain has to do in with review scores where it's like precisely you know no, no, right i mean it, yes i can't give this a six because it's so pretty and polished and feels so good to play or whatever or like right. it looks it can't be a six it's just not that type of game yeah i mean my it's argument broken, oh, right my argument against the yes no not yet system as much of an interesting experiment as it was was ultimately that this is like the ultimate reductive review score yeah. i mean if it's reductive to call a game a 7.5 it's even more reductive to just say no right <laughs> so so in the end i think as, our logic know, was that like this is how people actually talk yes yes which was fair and it was a worthy thing to do and it led to some very interesting discussions and in the end we're just writing opinions about video games on the right. internet so it's fine to break a few eggs while you're figuring out how to do this i think we have a better way of doing it yeah, now just not having anything now. like that um all right let's keep moving here is an email from joe he says hey jason and kirk the only battle royale game i want to hear about at e3 <laughs> is one that involves cephalopods shooting ink obviously talking about echo the dolphin um do you want to see kirk a battle royale splatoon game no i'd love to see i mean i know but i'd love <laughs> to see a, a i mean that would be great i, I think it'd be fun I, I can't really imagine it only because splatoon maps are so small and don't have that many players and i don't think the switch online infrastructure can handle that many players but sure i i'd love to see a new splatoon um pvp mode in general i know uh-huh. i believe that the doctor expansion is all single player stuff which i'm also psyched about though i actually still haven't finished the splatoon 2 single player stuff it's all very creative but kind of it's, I, I can't play it for long periods of time. I'm not yeah. really sure why that is. But um, I, so I want to see, I would love to see new modes for that game because I've actually been kind of going back to that game and it's so freaking good and I like it so much. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, the, it's so I would stylish. Also, I would also love to see an um, Echo the Dolphin battle royale game. <laughs> <laughs> dolphins yes. all fight. Dolphins um, just would, ramming would, into each other. All right, yep. give us the next question. Okay, this is from Dimitrik, who writes, Hello, gentlemen. How much pressure do you think Sony Bend and Media Molecule are facing because of the strong first-party success Sony's studios have been having? Does the success of God of War and Horizon Zero Dawn put unfair pressure on these studios? What do you think of that? I think the success of God of War and Horizon Zero Dawn puts pressure on every studio, not just Sony's, but like every single studio in the video game industry. I think both Hmm. of those games just like set this new benchmark for their specific genres and some of the things that they did. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's I don't think any sort of pressure is unfair unless someone at Sony is just like you need to get a 95 Metacritic or whatever to Sony brand. And I don't think that they're doing that. Um, I just think that they're just like I mean, I think deve- I think creative people are just naturally competitive and just challenging themselves all the time. And I'm sure that everyone at Sony Ben is like, man, I really want to do this. Or like, look at this cool thing that this game is doing. We should get this in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's the same as, I don't know, any other game. Fortnite, I'm sure. Everyone's looking at Fortnite. Everyone's looking at everything in the video game industry. Also, I don't think that people in the video game industry are very much like... I mean, the sense I've gotten just from talking to developers is that like everyone wants every game to be good because they just want to play lots of good games. Nobody's like, man, I, I here at this Call of Duty studio, we really hope the new Battlefield sucks or whatever. Like The executives might see them as competition, but I don't think the creative people are really doing that as much. Yeah, I think if the if the people at the studio, if the people working on the games are 
aware at all that of Sony's bottom line and how they need to play a role in that. I could almost see it being taking pressure off that there have been these hugely successful PS4 games because, you know, it's less important for Sony's, you know, that quarterly returns to have yet another mega hit. I mean, I doubt anyone is thinking of it that way, but in some ways, just having a bunch of hits, I mean, Detroit sure. Become Human, I guess we'll see how the sales do on that, but for me as a as a gamer just having a game be kind of disappointing in the middle of you know god of war being really good and hopefully spider-man being good and really liking horizon and you know whatever if they if they do another bloodborne etc etc that makes me just think i still think really positively of sony and i'm liking all these sony games that i'm playing and the fact that they released a game that i didn't really like matters less to me so if anything it almost takes the pressure off yeah. from that perspective because uh-huh. it's less of a big deal for sony in that way so let's keep going um brian says um this is a long question so i'm just gonna skim skip around a little bit he says basically do you think do you guys think we are running out of ideas in the video game industry and he's not talking about ideas in game design but he's talking about in hardware um it's clear that sony and microsoft haven't really made big leaps in terms of technological improvements compared to previous generations and they haven't made great innovations either. Nintendo is the obvious exception, but how long can they continue to do so? Generally, console manufacturers and AAA developers are just pushing graphics, and this is going to get more expensive every year, but it seems like we're getting diminishing returns. Should these companies be looking for other avenues of innovation and growth? Should Sony and Microsoft experiment more with their consoles and controllers? Should they try to make gaming more accessible and attractive to the general public? Um, What do you think, Kirk? I mean, no, I don't think that they're running out of ideas. I, like VR is, is as much as VR is still a niche thing, there are so many ideas in VR that can be sort of plucked out of the VR world and just placed on their own and are fascinating. The idea of, you know, the way that VR hand controllers work with interacting with a digital space is like yeah. super cool. And there's stuff you can do with, you know, Oculus Touch or whatever. Not to mention Microsoft and HoloLens experiments. Right. And you look at AR stuff and then you look at AR stuff like Pokemon Go. I mean, Pokemon Go is still, I mean, there is still a, a feeling of looking around the world and, and spotting an Eevee and catching it with your phone. And it's right there in the world with you that, you know, that I think brought so many people into playing this kind of game that had never been there before. So if that's the goal of innovation is to bring in new people, which I think at least in the terms of in terms of controllers and interface and UX, it generally is. You know, the the people who are already here who are comfortable playing with a massive complicated video game controller are kind of here and they want to bring in new people. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that they're doing that. I I mean We're not seeing like some crazy new idea, but I don't know when the last time we really did was the Wii. Is that kind of the last, the last thing was just a, yeah, but the Switch is just video games. I mean, actually, the Switch was hailed for kind of being a return to just okay, it's more games. I mean, there's it's portable. There's some right. stuff you can do. I mean, but not also, like the it's Wii. not like like the so Brian talks about accessibility to the general public, and the biggest game we've ever seen, or the at least the biggest game we've seen this decade, is a copy of a battle royale game that came out last year. It's like as as far away from innovative as you get. So well, actually, I yeah, think it's accessible in a different way, right? It's yeah, free. yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's well, free on your phone. But I mean. The fact that that's penetrated the mainstream and reached people who wouldn't normally play games, and maybe they play Fortnite and they're like, "Hey, man, I would really like other games." So that I aspect about that. of it, I wonder if that's so? the case. Like, I think it's safe to say Pokemon Go did that. That definitely okay. got people who don't play games to play games. I'm I don't know about that with Fortnite. Having played that game, I'm not sure if the people who play Fortnite are people who don't play video games 
regularly. I, I maybe they are, but I I, I really... think there's a lot of that. I think that Fortnite mm. is so massive that it's it's like penetrated just like totally new like groups of people, especially younger yeah. people who maybe were just like playing Minecraft before. Um, well, but that's I, I mean, but the younger people I feel like all just play video games. Sure, also, I guess they're just you know. going to grow into more games. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's I I don't know what I've seen kind of anecdotally is just the way that Fortnite has taken over everything. Um, yeah. I was like like at a park the other day um, playing basketball with a couple of friends and these kids came over and were also playing basketball and immediately I just heard them talking about Fortnite and it's like, of course they're talking about Fortnite right now. Yeah, um, I mean, it really does. I mean, Pokemon Go is the thing that this makes me think of. I remember being out at parks and just seeing everybody there was playing yeah. Pokemon Go and it was, you know, sort of similar experience and um, that game definitely innovated and had new ideas and brought new people in. So um, Let's keep going. You want to do the next one? Yes, this comes from Sam. Sam writes, God of War was hailed for its story, and it is a masterwork of world building and character development and dialogue, but it has a plot structure that is almost exclusively go to point A, find out you need item X, progress past point A to find point B, find out you need item Y, go to point C, find out you need item Z, etc. I found the narrative structure unbelievably gamey and cheap. But I didn't read that critique in any review. Is the bar just too low for video game narrative, or am I just crazy? Well, Thanks I don't the think... Pod. I'm a big split-scrivangelist. I just wanted to get that in there. That okay, Sam yeah, that's a, a good one. split-scrivangelist. Um, so narrative. I think Sam brings up an interesting point, and I don't think narrative structure is really what... Like, I think narrative structure can be cliche and still work really well, because a story can still resonate with you, and it can still say interesting things, whether or not it is a structure you've seen before. And in fact, some would say that, like having good narrative structure um, is what is like essential for a good story. And if you look at, I don't know, Star Wars, the most beloved story in movies, it has this uh, Joseph Campbell, like straight up hero's journey structure that's ripped right out of the book. Um, so, so at the end of the day, I don't think that having like a gamey structure is necessarily something that hurts a story. Um, and when Sam says that it's a master, when God of War is a masterwork of world building and character development and dialogue, I mean, I think that's why it's hailed for its story. Um, I don't know. And, and there's only so much, like, I don't envy the people who have to come up with creative solutions to, like, what should this next mission be? What should you do next? Because there are only so many things you can do in a game where the only verb is killing things. And you're, the only thing you can really do is either solve puzzles or uh, uh, throw your axe at enemies. Um, and I think that things would be different in a game like Detroit Become Human or, like, Until Dawn, to name something I've been playing recently, where there's narrative choices and trees and it can do more interesting things with storytelling and there are a lot of smart people out there people who are way smarter than i am studying how video games can tell stories in more interesting ways than movies and do things that only video games can do um but with god of war i mean i think it just worked i didn't it the plot structure did not bother me what do you think yeah, I think that that's a combination of things. I, you know, I, I agree that the world building in God of War in particular was really great. I think that dialogue was good, you know, above average for a game. The characters were above average for a game. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked some of the narrative beats just because there. they were so much fun. But yeah, but okay, so but to, dis- to discuss that caveat a little bit, games have both a disadvantage and an advantage built into the fact that they're built around game systems, right? Um, I think that God of War and all video games really – 
do this trick that isn't even a conscious trick where they get you invested in the story because you're invested in your progression through the game. Uh And it's clever and it works really well where as Kratos becomes more powerful, you know, so you're kind of watching the progression of this relationship between Kratos and his son, the progression of this story from the beginning to the end. It does follow a very formulaic structure of, oh, now we've got to this thing. Well, we don't have the thing we need. Let's go back to this place and get it. Very familiar. But what's happening through all that is also you're getting more powerful and you're getting better stuff and you're getting better at the game and you're fighting harder enemies and your level is raising, you're getting new abilities. And so kind of undergirding the progression of the story is this constant sense of progression through the game, which is always satisfying even through games that don't have stories, right? That's mm-hmm. just like something games do well is give you this feeling of progression. They've the gotten very good at it. Yes. Right. So it's kind of by dovetailing those things together, you feel like the story is this thing that you've really worked your way through and built toward and now it's reached this conclusion you've because you've it. also Yeah, because you've also been playing the game and like and progressing through the game. It's a massive strength in one sense because it makes even a story like God of War, which, you know, it's fair to say that God of War is a pretty standard story in a lot of ways. It has a lot of nice moments and beats. It's really well done, but it's not, you know, going to freak you out. It's, I would say, not like The Last of Us to me was a much more, you know, shocking story at times and had a lot more impact on, on me and the characters and stuff. I liked them better uh, to use a sort of similar game as a comparison. Uh-huh. But it, you know, it has that going for it at the same time. Because it has that going for it, it needs to be structured to work with that structure. So then you wind up going to point A and you need to go to point B to get item C. And you kind of wind up doing that same thing that we do in all these games, including the last of us, including whatever other like major AAA story-based games that aren't doing, you know, really experimental stuff mm-hmm. with narrative like you're seeing in more indie games. So it's a strength and a weakness. It's something that's unique to games. It's something I'm always interested in seeing games experimenting with or putting aside. And God of War is, you know, I think I described it this way when we first talked about it. It is definitely a video game. I mean, it takes it takes That's elements the video of these very es of the, video games. Yeah, it takes very tried and true elements of AAA games. It's stuff that we've seen before, and it does it really, really well. And it's super fun to play, and that makes it a great game. I actually would not call it a narrative masterpiece no. or anything like that. I think it's just a really friggin' good game that I liked a lot and had a good time playing. Yeah, for and a lot of so, reasons. So this is an interesting segue to the next question, which I won't read the whole thing. But Ian basically says that. Um, um, he's looking at these games with narrative focuses like God of War um, and The Last of Us. He mentions the trite become human, but obviously that's not a great example given the story of that. But he's saying that like these stories that are lauded among the greats of video games don't really stack up, in his opinion, to The Wire um, and other greats in books and TV and film. And I think that's an interesting point because I think that one of the things that people don't really often think about when they're comparing games to um, books, movies, TV shows is that in books, movies, and TV shows, the story is the point. Everything exists to tell a story. It is sitting there and telling you a story and that's what you're doing. With a game, it has it might have completely different goals because of the whole interactivity element and a game's goal is to, well, a game's goal, a goal can be lots of things, but um, it it might want to do more than just tell a story in a way that a movie or a TV show will never do. So something like God of War, for example, it doesn't just want to tell this story about Kratos and his in, inability to be a father. It's also telling the story about you getting to control Kratos as you run around and kill a bunch of things and have a good time doing it because it feels so good to do that. And I think that like inevitably you can't reach the same highs with storytelling when you're doing something that isn't only about storytelling. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I think related to this, a couple of thoughts. First is that I'm just going to shame you and tell listeners that Jason still hasn't watched The Wire. And I think that that's ridiculous. That's true. It's on my list. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been on your list forever. This is like it's like your Sweet Code Two. You need to watch The Wire because it's really good. Um, okay, I'll watch actually, it if you play Sweet Code Two. Uh, no, 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 that's not how this works. You have to make it a bet next year, Ugh. and then then that's then so at the end of 2019. Ugh. So a, a related thought. Um, just in something that I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about Chris Dolan, who is a really brilliant writer. Uh-huh. Um, he wrote, I think he wrote Mark of the Ninja. He wrote the game, but he was a critic before that. Um, I republished wrote a something great article that I think, about Dark Souls. Yeah, so I'm going to republish this thing this week because I've been playing Dark Souls Remastered, and I'm finally about to get to Sen's Fortress and um, get to sort of really live through this level that he so brilliantly describes, and still one of my favorite things written about game design and about Dark Souls. Um, I believe the headline I gave it is what Dark Souls is really all about. Um, uh-huh. That'll be on Kotaku later this week. I think I'm going to bump it up. So Chris nice. wrote this really wonderful thing, and he wrote something else, actually, that touched on Dark Souls, and it was also about Avatar The Last Airbender and about The Wire. And it was about um, this sort of how world building works and how, you know, th- the way you can build a systemic sort of clockwork mechanism as a narrative, you know, designer. And I'm not sure how much he talked about Dark Souls in that article. This is a blog post that I think his blog doesn't even exist anymore and can't even be read. But this That's is just sad. based on memory. Yeah. But um, but basically, I do think that Dark Souls actually does some interesting stuff. And games like Dark Souls do some... Uh, they have some very high-level similarities with The Wire. So the thing about The Wire that you'll find when you watch it that makes it so rewarding uh-huh. is that it, the show does not hold your hand to an extent that is still unusual in basically any series that aren't made by um you know george pelicanos and and david simon um and it's really i mean it's a show where re-watching it i was like holy shit i understand uh, like 75 percent more of what's happening now because i've watched the whole thing once and i know what happens i know who all these people are and what they're talking about because it's very very dense and it it never really holds your hand dark souls in the way that it builds its world is really the kind of world and the kind of story that could only be told in a video game and you know other games have done this as well but it really is effective when you start to see you know the whole tapestry of the full trilogy and what the characters they're talking about and the way they bury things in item descriptions and hide things around you watch some of those dark souls lore videos that are legit and really are backed up by the text of the game the game isn't just doing the sort of story we're talking about in god of war it's telling this completely different structured kind of a linear story but it's really really cool and i do think that games are experimenting with storytelling in that way Mm -hmm. and i'd love to see more of that it tends to be more like you know like in destiny where there's an a story this is kind of the big story of whatever you fighting something but then over time there's this b story hidden away in all these little things and that winds up being the more interesting story i think we see that a lot right now because mm-hmm. there's still a need for that big story you know that obvious movie style you know narrative which as you pointed out isn't always well served by being in a game who's you know because the game's goals can be something other than just telling that story mm-hmm. as well as possible yeah interesting points all around um let's keep going let's get through a couple more you want to read this next one yes mike writes hello gentlemen jason how how many things do you know about that will be revealed at e3 that people have no idea about yet (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's a good one so that's a tough question to answer so there are a few different i was hoping you would just be like 42 42 um (laughs) so there are a few things so i handle i'm handling our planning for e3 so there are a couple things where like publishers will be like okay we have this unannounced thing coming and kind of hint a little bit or they won't say anything but they'll just say unannounced game and then sometimes i'll piece together what it is but like i would never ever share that because for me to share stuff that i'm learning while trying to plan for an event would be the biggest dick move (laughs) ever um so (laughs) that's one thing and then there's stuff that like just people have told me or things that i've heard or gotten emails about or whatever over the 
months or over the weeks that I think will be at E3. And that stuff is, I mean, there are a couple of things I can think about. I don't want to like tease people and be like, oh my God, I know about this amazing thing because mm-hmm. there's nothing like that that I can really say. Um, I don't know. I, I want to be as surprised as everybody else is. Like, I know that Bethesda will have more than just uh, the new Fallout thing they announced and Rage 2 and Prey DLC. Like, I know they'll have more than that. So I'm excited to see whatever that might be. Like, I don't know what they'll have. Um, but yeah, I mean, just like a, a few things, like nothing nothing that would blow anyone's mind, I don't think. What about you? What do you know about that? I'll be revealed at E3. I don't know. I know I'll be at home uh, yeah. helping you cover You'll E3. I always enjoy it. I enjoy when people ask you like about stuff like that and then you talk about it and wondering like whether that was enough for like a reset era thread or not <laughs> what you just said. No, like I could don't I think see so. there being a thread? Mm, Jason Schreier, Bethesda will have more than just Fallout at their press conference. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um but there was an enjoy there have been enjoyable threads based on things that we've said on yeah, the show. So just those very are casually. funny. Um I, <laughs> I like the idea of just casually dropping things. Um but yeah, I mean it's it's I I am expecting to be get like be surprised, and I'm hoping to be surprised because I don't really like knowing everything. I like they're being basi- uh, yeah surprised. being surprised by something cool is basically the only ex- thing that gets me excited during E3. At exactly, this point. exactly. Um, yeah, there's one thing I know about that might excite you, um, but I won't tell you about because I want you to be excited. Okay, cool. Let me so be I'm surprised. Just not it's fine. Um, all, right. all right, let's move on. Uh, that's Kevin. the thread. That's the thread. Jason Schreier. Something that will excite Kirk Hamilton, and then it'll be a bunch of people trying to figure out what excites me. Is it a jazz game? Like what? <laughs> something about weather? Maybe a, a Roomba video game? Well, Kirk, it's all about the games you don't announce. Oh God. Um, Kevin says weather in Arizona is sunny and warm as always. With that out of the way, I think you've mentioned that blockchain is becoming a popular buzzword with developers. With the possibility of hearing about us hearing about it coming out of E3, can you provide a fifty thousand foot level of what blockchain does? For for games kirk give it to us no the answer is no do? i can't i can't provide a fifty thousand foot level of what <laughs> blockchain does for games i don't know so I, blockchain yeah. is just so we get a lot of emails from pr people who i guess are chasing or i guess are working for investors that are chasing blockchain um and everyone is just using this word blockchain i i have a vague notion of what it is like it's it's the concept of like cryptocurrency is basically you're digging for these blocks that are part of a chain and they're all encrypted in certain ways and once enough computers like like basically computers are just like randomly generating these numbers in an attempt to find these blocks and once they find a block it becomes uniquely theirs and belongs to them and that's a whole basic yeah and it, um, it's like the master key the chain is like a master yeah key. so so but i have no idea what it means for gaming i don't think anyone does i think it's all just a bunch of nonsensical buzzwords <laughs> so um it's all just nonsense. yeah i mean my my blockchain explainer recommendation is to watch the john oliver segment they did on blockchain which was good and mentioned that i think you know companies were just putting blockchain in their name randomly and watching their stock go up for a mm-hmm. time so i think part of that is why we're seeing more <laughs> blockchain just attached to random video games that have nothing to do with yeah, blockchain it's just it's because just... that word seems to just make money appear out of thin air at least uh-huh. for now so. trend trend chasing um yeah. all right david says hi Kirk and jason i've been following destiny 2's post-release trajectory and it's been interesting to see a common refrain 
and among fans of Des- of Bungie. The problems in Destiny 2 aren't Bungie's fault, they're Activision's. They seem to think of the studio as entirely dedicated to the player, whereas the publisher is a greedy corporation willing to do anything for profit. This isn't new. Many people said the same things when Battlefront 2 launched, i.e. blame EA, not DICE. Is there any truth to these stories? How often does it actually happen like this behind the scenes, where the developers are like pro player and the publishers are like, no, we are greedy. <laughs> Kirk, what do you think? I mean, this is something we've talked about with so many people on the show. I think Tim Schafer, memorably, we've discussed publisher relationships quite a bit. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of the people, I think, are GDC. This probably came up like four times during our most recent GDC yeah. run of podcasts. So, you know, at the risk of, of just reiterating them and also at the risk of talking out of turn because I've never worked at a game studio, I, you know, I think that this is a something where it comes down on both sides. Like, I, you know, if a, if a game has a lot of problems, those problems it's very easy to fall into the narrative of, oh, the publisher mandated this thing and ruined the game. You know, these suits are, are, are interjecting their, their money into the purity of game design that the pub- that the developer really wanted to make. I don't think that's the case. I certainly don't think that's the case with Destiny 2. I think there were just problem, like bad decisions made at, at some points. And I think also I'm sure some of it was due to the publishing you know agreement that they have with Activision and the, the way that we, we know actually a lot about that agreement. So mm-hmm. that's probably likely too. So I would imagine that in any case... You know, ditto this the case with Battlefront too. Um, it's not as simple as that. I think you're maybe you can talk about this better than I can, but you're talking about the visceral Star Wars game and the way that you reported on that. I feel like was a really interesting look at the at the more complicated truth behind EA canceling a Star Wars game that everyone mm-hmm. wanted, right? Yeah, it's the type of thing where like the people, yes, the people who run a publisher are like their number one interest is serving investors and and generating revenue, but the best way for them to do that is not necessarily by like milking gamers from everything they've got and we saw that with battlefield uh, 5 which just got announced right and and dice was like no loot boxes no premium passes and everyone's just waiting around for them for them to say the catch and maybe there will be a catch later on but i think that they are cognizant of and ea is very cognizant of after the battlefield battlefront 2 drama the fact that um the like having outrage and pissing off your players by going too far with this stuff is just going to backfire and going to wind up like making you less money in the long run. Like the, the best way to make money is to make things that people really like. Um, you look at Overwatch and you look at Fortnite and all these other massive money makers and they're massive money makers because people enjoy playing them and enjoy spending money on them. So right. yeah, it's it's the type of thing where like uh, uh, I don't think that anyone really wants to do the wrong thing. They just can go too far and uh, it's it's uh, sometimes internet outrage can be a good thing because it'll drive companies away from loot boxes and other predatory practices. So yeah, it's it's definitely nuanced. It's definitely simpler than like developer good, publisher evil, because a lot of times these decisions are being made by the developers. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. Um, do you want to do the next question? Next letter is from John. John writes, "Hi, Jason and Kirk. Thanks for making the most insightful and thought provoking video game podcast around." Oh as yeah. A jazz mus- <laughs> as a jazz musician myself, I love the musical perspective Kirk brings to a lot of topics, and laughed out loud when Jason called us out for using nasty and gross to describe cool beats in an earlier episode. Um, I'm glad you liked that. Uh, My question for E3 is this. What game design innovations would you like to see at E3 this year? More performative games like SOS or Spy Party? More systems-based open-world games like Breath of the Wild? More boy-based games like God of War? I would love to hear about the designs that delight you. 
I want to hmm. see more JRPGs. That's easy. Jason's easy. He wants more JRPGs. <laughs> for real. I want to see Final uh, Fantasy. I'm most excited for Square Enixes because, I don't know, I'm just holding out hope that they'll be like, Final Fantasy 16, and I'll be like, oh my god, and just die. Yeah, I don't know what I want to see design-wise. I mean, my favorite kinds of games are the systems-oriented games, like Breath of the Wild, and all these immersive sims that have mostly been doing dog shit sales and, like, nobody wants to make anymore. So, I feel like if I, you know... Well, there's going to be more Prey. I was about that. to say, so Prey has been teasing some moon-based thing, and I want to hear more about that. Oh, I have um, an appointment to see uh, Ultima Underworld. That's a systems game. Yeah, yeah. So, there'll be, you know, I, that's usually what I'm most interested in, because those are my favorite kinds of games. But other than that or i mean i like the idea i like the idea of more performative games like spy party and sos yeah like that's I, cool yeah, spy party is a super cool game i don't know if we'll see it at e3 but um i do like games like that but yeah, yeah sure i guess more games like like breath of the wild um i would love to see uh another i would love to see more strategy games but not like XCOM style more like final fantasy tactic style i feel like there's a whole genre of turn-based strategy that's just being left on the hmm. on the on the cutting room floor i guess or left on like it, it's a type of thing that could make a lot of money i think and could be super popular if someone took what's the, the tell me explain your distinction between final fantasy tactics and XCOM. oh well just XCOM is more like uh uh i don't know actiony or like like cover and you're more concerned with like distance fighting as opposed to tile based grid based like fire emblem or well not even like fire emblem, really just a final fantasy tactics formula like if someone okay. took that and just applied it to any other game i bet it could be amazing so, so. maybe without shooting and cover is kind of what is the decision yeah game, i guess maybe. so yeah something like that um mm. but yeah just final i just want more final fantasy tactics man Why can't we get more final <laughs> yeah fantasy i mean that, that would be nice um and um yeah i don't know i like being surprised something that surprises me in an interesting way but i've become over time i, I think i've told you this maybe i mentioned on the show but like i used to in the early 2000s or when i was younger i would only play rpgs and all i would buy and play and or ask my parents to buy or whatever was rpgs and then i think it was like 2007 or 2008 is well other than like pc games i guess point and click adventures and stuff like that and strategy games actually maybe i, I didn't only play rpgs consoles <laughs> this has been quite a journey Jason. i only played rpgs on consoles and then mm, okay. it was only like 2008 or so that i started getting broadening genres and playing like metal gear solid and grand theft auto and stuff like that um and then since then i've just become like i don't know i've just grown to the point where i can just play and enjoy most games and just if they're good so mm -hmm. uh, i'm not super picky i just want some cool stuff um which That's i think fair. there will be i think it'll be a good d3 um all right do you want to read the next one because i did two in a row before oh i did two in a row okay okay i'll do this one this is from Chris. Hi, guys. I only picked up the podcast for the first time before Christmas, and fortunately, this also coincided with my first time building a PC alongside Jason. I loved your recent articles, which charted your journey and the follow-up with the 15 emotions you feel after building a PC, especially and especially one that chimed with me, anxiety that you're not taking proper advantage of your machine. <laughs> yep. Although you touched on a great point with the FreeSync, G-Sync part, for me, it's something much more fundamental. Am I really taking advantage of the parts I just spent all this money on? For example, I understand the principles of overclocking, but my only 
only attempts so far with AMD's Ryzen Master have been lost every time I do a reboot, and I'm too chicken to play with the BIOS just yet. As you both now have plenty of experience, I wonder if you have any basic tips for ensuring I take full advantage of my components. Settings to check, maybe some tools that can tell me if something is not running at capacity versus the spec. This is entirely you. I have no idea. I don't know what <laughs> tools or settings to check. This is really entirely you. Um, um, I This is a tricky one because there is no, like, the, every PC has a ceiling, right? So if you build a PC with, you know, I have an i7-700K chip and the GeForce GTX 1080 GPU. And so those are my two main things, you know. Uh-huh. And, and there's a ceiling, theoretically, somewhere in there. Like, my chip is capable of going to a certain clock speed without overheating um, with the cooling apparatus that I have. My GPU is capable of running at a certain, you know, uh, frequency or um, and without without crashing. So, you know, you can get into overclocking pretty easily these days if you really want to. I have, like, a really complicated relationship with overclocking. I've written about it. Um, I think I talked about it in the... I did a collection of posts there, the 10 best and 10 worst things about building yeah, a new PC. Yeah, enjoyable posts. And one of those is about... Um, about overclocking and how overclocking is horrible because it is kind of horrible, but it's maddening, but it's also great because it's, it kind of gives you this feeling that I think Chris is talking about this feeling that you're really maxing out your PC. Mm-hmm. Honestly, my main advice is let go of the feeling that you need to maximize your PC. If you have a good CPU and a good GPU, you're fine. I think it's only really an issue if you're, um, you know, trying to play a game and it's just not running very well and you can't figure out why, which can be very frustrating. Um, I think the best way to actually get the most mileage out of your GPU and CPU is to get a really good monitor um and you know i think it sounds like chris was talking about FreeSync and g-sync yeah. if you can get a monitor that's high res and runs at a high frame rate then you can really start feeling like okay you know i'm no longer just capped at 60 frames per second i really want to get up above 100 for every game you really start to see that kind of you know maxing out the power that you can get uh-huh. and then other than that you know there's a there's a whole suite of monitoring software you can get you can get stuff that comes with your GPU. You can get CPU-Z or GPU-Z. There's a lot of stuff you can download if you really want to go down that rabbit hole. Right. And I would also say if you're getting into overclocking, don't be as nervous about it as it's easy to feel like you want to be. Like you'll see some horrible photo on Reddit of someone's CPU and it's blackened and burned because (laughs) they weren't cooling it properly. That's not going to happen to you. Like your CPU will shut down if it gets too hot. You can get a good cooling apparatus. You You can overclock your PC in a permanent way and be fine with it. Just sort of look at what the standard overclock settings are for whatever your CPU are mm-hmm. or your CPU is. I actually don't overclock my GPU, last thought. Um, I got like a, I think it's like a FTW. I don't remember who makes it. Um, it's a it's a good, <laughs> it's already it's called overclocked. FTW. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm forgetting good the manufacturer. Good old gamer right name. It's one of those main, you know, MSI um, ASUS. It's not them, it's the other one. Um, but anyways, it's, a, it's good and it's factory overclocked. So I messed with overclocking it for a while and was kind of getting instability and it's because it's already running super fast and it's already kind of pre-overclocked so I just let it be and it's fine and so sometimes you can just run things that you know they're at their stock speeds and you'll, it'll just be fine mm-hmm. so it's kind of a I guess a mixture of go as deep as you want to go but don't develop a complex over it if you can help <laughs> easier said than done that's um, true <laughs> I will say that I've spent the weekend playing uh, PS1 games so I've been really been taking advantage of yeah. my uh, of my You're graphics really- Pushing as many polygons as possible. Yeah, I like the idea of like having this beefy computer and just using it to like emulate Lunar Silver Star on my computer, which is really fun. Um, Good game. 
Um, All right. One last question. I'll read this one. Brandon says, hey, Jason and Kirk, I've had something on my mind in a while. Um, He talks about how he just joined the PC world. He's been an Xbox user for a while. And his girlfriend, he introduced to gaming and she he winded uh, and she winded up buying herself a switch. So he wants to play Mario and Zelda. So the question is, what are our thoughts on picking games to play with the sheer number of good games out there and limited time we have a day? How do you decide what to play when you have free time? Kirk, how do you decide what to play? Um, my my it, answer is just text Kirk. What should I play? <laughs> that's, that's actually sort of true. Um, uh, my take is it, it varies, you know, it varies. It depends on how I'm feeling and where I'm at in life and what I'm trying to do. There are times where I'm really ready. Like lately I've been playing Dark Souls Remastered, which is a very, you know, involved game that requires you to pay attention at every moment. And so I've had time for that. At other times, you know, before that I was playing a lot of Destiny 2, which requires, does not require that for the most part. And it's very, you know, just kind of chill mainstay that I can just kind of grind and listen to podcasts and do my weekly stuff for a few hours. I haven't had that much time to play a whole lot of things lately. And I do find, especially with Destiny as the relevant example, because that's the kind of game that I've been playing like this, it gets harder and harder for me, even for work at times, when I just feel like it's, you know, a game where I'm just, it's designed to just be played forever and I can just play it forever. Yeah. Yeah. There definitely comes a point where comparing that to playing Dark Souls is a pretty stark difference, where Dark Mm. Souls, every moment with that game really feels rewarding and challenging and involving you know a game that just feels like an appointment that you have to keep every week there uh-huh. are times where at least for me i i just am like okay i can't do this anymore you know i've i've played all the new stuff I, there's a bunch of little things i haven't gotten but i'm just gonna kind of stop and so that i think that's at least been a consideration for me lately is uh-huh. is going for more sort of the, that quality of the game where the game is a dense real thing that i can like play and focus on and not just sort of an ongoing commitment to maintain um but then sometimes i like the ongoing commitment because it's low impact and chill and whatever so yeah it's it, easy it varies I it's guess, easy to be like hey what should i play oh you know what gotta grind in destiny a little bit gotta yeah, play like some that's PvP. just an easy answer right yeah. where sometimes i think well i have five other things i could be playing uh like you know i could be playing donkey kong i could be playing dark souls i could be playing more into the breach or whatever and that right. sort of just feels overwhelming so then i just go play destiny anyways and that's fine like that's a that can be a nice thing to do it is choice paralysis is a very real thing which is why i recommend texting kirk and uh i'll give you his number right now it's and uh you should text him and be like hey kirk uh what should i play this weekend and he'll respond and give you a good answer that's what i do so try that yeah great i'm really looking forward to hearing from all of you all right kirk i think that's it uh we will be back next week to talk about our e3 predictions which is exciting we are almost there very very exciting stuff and yeah see you around all right see you next week jason goodbye kotaku split screen is an official podcast of kotaku.com it's produced by jason schreier and me kirk hamilton i edit and mix the podcast and also wrote and performed our theme song and other music we're part of the Fusion Podcast Network, where Mandana Mofiti is executive producer of audio. You can find us on popular podcast services like Panoply, NPR Now, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, and we hope that you'll leave us a review if you like what you hear. Find old episodes at kotaku.com slash splitscreen. Email us at splitscreen at kotaku.com.